0: To be here this morning. I was talking with one of your elders this morning, and it wasn't too many years ago when I was standing down there visiting the church and sharing to about 12 people. You are an answer to prayer for the Bible Fellowship Church, for me, and many others who have gotten on their knees and prayed for God to work His work in this church. And so when I stand here this morning and I look out at you, I am blessed by what God has done in your midst. So praise God for that. So it's good to be with you this morning. And as Brother West said, uh, I'm the director of Church Extension Ministries. For those of you who are not familiar with that, Church Extension Ministries is the mission arm of the Bible Fellowship Church that seeks to reach people with the gospel and plant new Bible Fellowship Churches. And so in your bulletin, if you have that bulletin, you'll see an insert. It's a directory of your Bible Fellowship Church planters. And I say your because these men serve the Bible Fellowship Church, and they serve each church in the Bible Fellowship Church. Uh, So if you want to take that out, I'd love to draw your attention there uh, to that particular directory and point out a few individuals that are in there, some of them new on the scene, Uh, particularly the Board of Church Extension just opened a new mission church. Now, there's two types of churches in the BFC. There's a mission church, which is a church plant, a new church that's developing, and there are particular churches. This church, Faith, is a particular church because it's been chartered, it's been received into the conference, and uh, you're autonomous unto the ruling and governing of your own elders here, and yet connected to the BFC through um, fellowship, and through an agreement uh, to practice our Articles of Faith as your doctrinal position here in the church. But these are mission churches. These are churches that are developing, that are starting, and their goals are to reach three criteria in order to graduate and be received in annual conference. The goals that these mission churches are to reach is that, number one, they need a group of committed participants. Uh, 20 committed participant adults who will become the charter member of their church. They need at least two men other than a planter or pastor who will be the elders of the church, and they need to be financially self-supporting. And so these these mission churches that you're looking at in front of you uh, are all in various stages to get to that point of graduating. Now, praise God, this coming year, in uh, next year, I should say, 2023, I guess that is this coming year, isn't it? Uh, 2023, we will be presenting two of those mission churches for graduation. That's the Fork Township Mission Church up near Easton, Pennsylvania, and also the Cape May Courthouse Mission Church down in Cape May County. They will be assessed in the next two months, and Lord willing, those assessments will go well according to those criteria I just mentioned, and then we'll be bringing them into the Bible Fellowship Church next April. Now, there are two Uh, As as a matter of fact, there's probably one more that, again, Lord willing, may be coming into the Bible Fellowship Church this coming April. And that's, we've been working for the past year and a half on a merger of our South Allentown Church under the leadership of Stephen Diaz and Allentown Bible Church, both of these right in the heart of Allentown in the city. Uh, They have been working together, and we're at the final stages of of uh, completing that merger between the two. And so they have, uh, they have plenty of people right now uh, ready to be the committed participants. Uh, they also have plenty of good leadership in place, and we're working with them to try to have a plan for them to be self-supporting. And so in actuality, and if the Lord providentially agrees to it, we're going to present three new churches into the Bible Fellowship Church next year, And then two other ones are in preparation now to be brought in in 2024. That'll be five new churches in the next two years. Now, quantitative growth is good for the BFC, I believe. Why? Because we always have churches that close. And over the past 15 years, we've closed eight churches. But fortunately, I should say, uh, according to God's work, we have been able to bring in 10 new churches. So there's still that net growth and increase in the Bible Fellowship Church. Church planting, church extension mission, is a very viable and vital element of the Bible Fellowship Church. And that's why we really need your prayers. Pray for these individuals that are listed in that directory. Uh, The newest one is Emer Molina in Tapachula in the state of Chiapas in Mexico. Emer was trained by Marcos Ramirez, who's the pastor of our, our first international Bible Fellowship Church in Merida, Mexico. Emer uh, was working in Merida and went to the church there, La Roca uh, Church in, in Merida, and he attended the church there, and uh, he sensed the call of the Lord to go back to his hometown of Tapachula and plant a church, and Marcos trained him, worked with him, and sent him back there. He has now gathered a group of people, they're meeting in a facility and we were able to the board of church extension open a, officially open a mission church there. Pray for Emer because next year we would like to he is working full time in a tech position there in the city of Tapachula. We really would like to see him move to that point of being full time in ministry. And so we're working on a salary package with him. And we'll be seeking the Lord to help us raise e support for next year when he moves to full-time. And it's going well. He has 35, 40 people to start with. And um, the facility seats 100. And so we're hoping that, you know, by when we get him on full-time, he'll be able to see the Lord's blessing on his ministry there and continue to grow there. So that's the newest kid on the block there. And you'll see some other individuals there that I mentioned are going to be graduating also some other people you may have an interest in there. Uh, I have a table out here in the Narthex. I'll be out there after the service is over, and there's all kind of information there. And if you see somebody there that you particularly are interested in, that you would like to pray for and get to know more about them, I think I have everybody's prayer letter out there on the table. You can go by there and pick up their prayer letter, see what their prayer requests are. But also, if you really want to become involved, I should not say involved, but really become uh, more uh, understanding of church extension ministries, we have a weekly e-newsletter called The Antiochian, and it goes out every Friday morning, and it's filled with features of our our church planters and what they're doing. This past week, we had a feature on Jason Filbert in Naples, Florida. Uh, they've been helping the hurricane victims both there in Naples and also in Fort Myers. And we were able to raise some money uh, in order for them to buy chainsaws. Now, they weren't going to have a massacre or anything like that, uh, but they were going to go out and clear stuff off, uh, you know, tree limbs and things like that. So we were able to give them the funds to buy some chainsaws. They've been working with people in Naples and up in Fort Myers. And that's what your church planters do. They get out into the community and they reach people both on a spiritual level with the gospel, but also on a practical level, meeting their needs there. So if any of those individuals interest you and you'd like to learn more about them, please stop by the table. And there's a clipboard there to sign up for the Antiochian Weekly e-newsletter. All you need to do is put your name and email down, and I think you'll really appreciate that newsletter and what it has the information to give you every week concerning uh, expanding the kingdom of God through the Bible Fellowship Church Planters. Now, one of the things that our church planters, I just said that they, 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 they seek to get out into the community, especially initially to get to know the community. And they, they run into all kind of questions when they're in the community, And, you know, we don't even live in a post-Christian age anymore. We live in a post-post-post-Christian age here in America, where the questions are a lot different than they were 10, 15 years ago regarding the church, Christianity, and so on. And one of the more recent questions in the past number of years that your church planners have been running into is this question. What is Christianity? Christianity. We would never have thought that that would be a common question among the unchurched or unsaved, or particularly the unsaved here in America. But that question is becoming more and more prevalent. What is Christianity? How would you answer that question? Well, I'll jump to something here and say I'll give you an answer to give to people for that question. Let me suggest an answer, and the answer is this: If you're ever asked, "What is Christianity?" Here should be your biblical answer to that. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ, and it's about His sacrifice on the cross and His followers living sac- in sacrificial obedience to Him. And that's a pretty good answer, right? Well, if you didn't jot it down, you can—I don't know if you're filming this or or whatever—you can go back and get it off the off the tape. But that's the way we want to answer people when they say, "What is Christianity?" Bottom line, it's all about sacrifice, one word, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the sacrifice of his followers as they live out and walk with him in obedience. Now I want you to turn or tap or whatever you want to do back to Romans chapter 12. I always have to add that now because I don't hear as many pages turning as I used to when I was here uh, in the pulpit. Now it's tapping and all kinds of stuff going on. So turn back or tap back to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the first two verses here this morning, and we're going to ask the question, what is our reasonable, logical, spiritual response to the great work that Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary? Romans chapter 12. Therefore, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or in some cases, reasonable or logical service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father in heaven, as we sit and I stand here before you, Lord, we are hungry uh, for understanding your word. We are desirous to hear from you. We want, Lord, to leave here this morning with the understanding that we've met with you and that we've heard from you, and there's a response that we have to give in what we digested, Lord, from your word this morning. And so, Father, I pray that our attention would be to you, your word. I pray that our attention would also be, Lord, to how we apply that word in our lives as we walk out this building today. So thank you again, Lord, for the privilege and honor of being in this place to preach your word. May you bless the time we have together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now the Apostle Paul, of course, wrote this this letter to the the church in Rome, and uh, commentators have kind of robbed from grammar to describe the way Paul and his genre of writing. They say that Paul writes both indicatively and imperatively. And what they mean by that is that Paul usually, when he's writing, will give us declarations and explanations with regard to the thesis or theme or what he's trying to get across to us. But then he doesn't leave that go. He moves moves on to imperative commands. So indicatively, he will explain things to us like he does here in the book of Romans uh, for the first 11 chapters. And then he will move on to imperative actions that need to take place in response to what he's told, told us about. Now, the book of Romans is an excellent example of that type of approach that Paul uses in his writing. The first 11 chapters are indicative. They're explanations and clarifications, first on our total depravity, Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. And then from that point on, he gives us an explanation, declarations on how God dealt with that that state of our condition of depravity. How Jesus Christ on the cross redeemed us and brought us back from death, the devil, and slavery to sin. How Jesus Christ on the cross reconciled us and brought peace between God and us through his death. And how Jesus Christ did away with the charges against us and justified us, so much so that even in Romans 8, he could say to them that are in Christ Jesus, there's now no condemnation. Justice has been satisfied. And Paul goes on like that in the first 11 chapters here until he comes to the end of chapter 11, where I think he's so welled up with what he's saying about this work of God. Uh, these these declarations and explanations of what Christ did on the cross for us, I think he's so welled up that there in chapter 11 at the end, verse 33, he says, oh, in our street vernacular today, we might say, wow. Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again. For from him, and through him, and to him, are some things, no, are all things, to him be the glory forever. Now, Paul could have certainly ended the book right there. That doxology would have been a good conclusion to everything that he had been saying about Christ's work on the cross and how it applies to the sinner. But he doesn't, because Paul never leaves us hanging. He explained things to us about those great doctrines of salvation. He declared them. He sang about them in this doxology. And now, in chapter 12 through the end of the book, he wants to to tell us how we respond to such great work for our salvation. And that's where we come to that therefore in chapter 12 there. Uh, that begins this imperative side of Paul's writings in this book of Romans. So, this morning, we want to look at what are reasonable responses to such a great work of Christ on the cross. And we're going to see what motivates that response, how that response should be manifested, and then we're going to look at a mind that's mature in order to keep responding in the right way to that response of Christ's work. So let's let's start talking about those several things this morning. First of all in chapter 12 there, verse 1, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God. Now, I think most of us here have witnessed or experienced somebody that shown mercy to someone. Have you ever seen somebody show mercy to somebody? And normally, that person who has been shown mercy then does what? They go and try to be merciful to somebody else, right? At least that's what I've seen in people who have demonstrated mercy. They want to respond to other people mercifully also. Well, one of my favorites novel is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It's also my favorite Broadway show, too, for that matter. And uh, in, that, in that story, in that novel the key character, the protagonist there, is Jean Valjean. And Valjean was a prisoner in prison, and he came out of prison, and he was taken in by a priest, uh, and the priest housed him and fed him and so forth. And Valjean repaid the priest by stealing the silver articles from uh, from the church. A little bit later on, he was captured by the police, brought back to the priest to confirm that these articles belonged to the church, And the priest, surprisingly, to everybody's surprise, including Valjean and mostly Valjean, said, no, these articles are his. We want him to have those articles. And from that moment on, Valjean declared and vowed that he would show mercy to everyone that he came in contact with. Well, you see, when Christ went to that cross, that's why Paul here says, I urge That's a a really dominant, powerful word in the original language. I urge you. And it's not just referring, this therefore there is not just referring to the preceding context, which sometimes a, a word like therefore does, but it's really referring to everything that Paul said about our salvation and how Christ accomplished that in his death on the cross in the previous 11 chapters. He says, I urge you. And how do we know he's referring to all that? Because of the plural word, mercies. I urge you by these mercies. What mercies? The mercies I iterated earlier. The mercy of redemption and reconciliation and also justification. And the mercy of the eternal security that we have. All of these mercies, I urge you to respond. So what motivates us to respond to the great work of salvation in our lives is the the mercies that God gave to us, and that we then are to respond by like action with others. So a person who has shown mercy, especially these mercies of salvation that Paul wrote about in the first 11 chapters... Especially these mercies shown to us in salvation, we are now commanded to move out and work these mercies out. And that's what Paul would write to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling, or work it out with reverence. Work it out with a thankful reverence for what Christ has done for you. It doesn't mean that we work to get our salvation, it means that when we receive that salvation, from the work that Christ did on the cross, we are now to reverence God through working that out in our witness, in our testimony, in our walk with the Lord. So that's what motivates us to respond to the work of Christ on the cross. What motivates us is the mercies that are attached to that cross. The mercies that set me, that paid the price of my sin. The mercies that gave me peace with God and brought me back from separation with Him, the mercy that now I don't have to look over my shoulder or look above me to think when God's judgment's going to fall on me and do away with me, that mercy that set me free to be at peace with God through His justice. Well, that's our—that's what should reasonably motivate us uh, to respond. To such mercies. Now, how are those mercies manifested? Well, you, if you look at the second part there of that first verse, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, when Paul says here, I, you know, present your bodies, I think he's talking in a holistic manner. Uh, You know, we are body, soul, and spirit. And Paul often will refer to one element of our creative makeup in order to give a holistic picture. We are to present everything that we have, like Christ presented everything he had on the cross through his body, which we will remember in a few minutes. Well, maybe more than a few minutes, but anyway. Uh, But we are to present all of ourselves in a in a holy manner, in an acceptable manner, and in a living manner. Let's take that first one, okay? That living manner of response to the great work of Christ in their cross. Now, one commentator, and I, I kind of agree with him, uh, more than kind of, I do agree with him. He talks about this maybe being a compound word in the original, life-giving. Be a living sacrifice in response to the living, divine sacrifice that was given to you. Be a life-giving sacrifice like Christ was a life-giving sacrifice. Well, don't mistake me. Uh, we, We cannot give life to somebody else. We cannot give that spiritual life to somebody else. But we can give the message of life that, in turn, the Lord looks at working in a person's life, his elect calling, and brings him to salvation. So to be a living or life-giving sacrifice is to give up myself and be more concerned for the eternal position of that one I work with, that one I go to school with, that one that's in my family, that sleeps in the bed upstairs, that's not born again. Be a life-giving sacrifice, always with the understanding that I am here and we're going to learn uh, we, Paul, we would learn from Paul in his re- letter to 2 Corinthians, always being uh, a minister of reconciliation and ambassador for Jesus Christ. The second thing there is pretty obvious. Be a holy sacrifice. The word alludes to the fact that we should be pure, that Christians should show a contrast to the world around us. We are, a, as John Stott puts it, a counterculture. The world lives like this, and then that little word that Christ used throughout his sermon in the mouth. The world lives like this, and they believe like this, but you need to live like this. You need to think like this. You need to act like this. We need to be that holy, living sacrifice. That pure sacrifice. And then thirdly, we need to be an acceptable sacrifice too. Uh, In other words, if God were to come now to your life, would he accept you? Would he accept you? Would God welcome you into his presence and say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Would he accept me? I go through that question quite a bit. Am I a living sacrifice, giving the message of life to others? Am I a holy sacrifice? Is my life pure? And therefore... Will I be an acceptable sacrifice to God when he returns in Jesus Christ? You know, that's our reasonable response. You see at the end of that verse there, which is your spiritual response? Well, that word spiritual in the original language is the word logikos. What does that sound like in our English language? Logikos. Come on, wake up. English. Logical. Yeah, good. (laughs) Okay. Okay logical it's our logical sacrifice our reasonable sacrifice it's our spiritual sacrifice it's only reasonable because of what Christ did for us what's reasonable is because Christ redeemed reconciled justified us it's reasonable it's logical it's spiritual that we should respond with a holy life-giving Acceptable walk with him. Now, uh, our service to God is manifested through a pure life that has a life giving effect on others. This is the goal of the Christian life, according to Paul here. Now, when we come to verse 2, the first thing we notice in verse 2 is that the verbs change. They are be verbs here, two of them, and they're present tense. Okay, That means that they're connected. They're in continuity with each other. You have to do the one as well as the other. And so when Paul says here, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, what he's trying to tell us is this is a continual action that needs to take place. It just doesn't stop one time. That we are to continually work at being conformed at being transformed and not being conformed to this world now when we set a goal when you and i set goals you know we set those goals and many times sadly we 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 walk away from forget about them as time goes on but you only reach your goals when you set them and then you follow through with them so think of what paul is saying here here's the goal for reasonably responding to Christ's death on the cross. Here are the goals. Live and be a life-giving sacrifice. Be holy and be a pure sacrifice. And in result, be acceptable to God and be that acceptable sacrifice. Those are the goals. But unless we put them into action and seek to fulfill those goals, they just stand there. And sadly enough, so many of us Christians set the goals, but they just stand there. They're not active. Paul's saying here, here's the way to make them active. And take notice that he says here, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Feet? Hands? No. The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. What is your mind supposed to be set on? That would be a begging a question here of Paul's statement here. What is your mind supposed to be set on? Well, it's supposed to be set on not being conformed or to this world, but being transformed. That's, what, that's the goal. Okay, That's how we reach our goals. We reach our goals by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So he says, first of all, there's two things in order to maintain our commitment to be a holy living sacrifice. Number one, do not be conformed to this world. And that word world there is the same word that he used back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, when he said the God, a small g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to the beauty of the gospel. He's talking about the devil here. Don't be conformed to the devil. This world, don't be conformed to the devil's thoughts, his patterns, his schemes. Don't give in to those. You will never fulfill the goal of being a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice if you're going to give in to the devil and the world that he controls. Now, the question here that comes up, for me at least, is what am I conforming to in this world? Am I conforming to the world's view of marriage how it's just throwaway? Am I conforming to the world's view of the unborn, that the unborn has no viability? Am I conforming to the image of the world's the, the understanding of gender? Am I conforming to the world's understanding of morals, integrity, justice? it's you know, a question for us. If, we're going, if we have the goal of being a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, we can't be conformed to the God of this world and his mores. There's no way that those two things go together. That's why Paul goes on with that little word again. But be transformed in your mind. Be transformed. This complimentary response is to show us that this just doesn't happen when we're born again. It just doesn't happen that when we're a new creature in Christ and old things pass away and we become a new man or woman, it doesn't happen that all of a sudden, you know, we're not going to have any struggles. People ask me all the time when I meet them. Some of you did this morning, and I responded to you. They ask me all the time, how are you doing? And what my response is always to them, I stay in the battle. This is the battle of not being conformed, but being transformed by our mind. Now, that implies something. Being transformed by the renewing, and you see that's also an ongoing verb there, renewing, of our mind. How does that happen? How do we renew our mind? It's not, it's not rocket science. We renew our mind through the word of God, through prayer, and through fellowship with other Christians. Iron sharpens iron. The word of God gives us understanding of his thoughts to put in where our thoughts are. And prayer and meditation help us to digest all that. Don't be conformed to the devil's world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind through that which renews your mind. So, all of this is done in the mind. That's what we've been talking about here, this mind. This, this thoughts, this, this understanding of God's word that changes our thoughts and so forth. And Paul, you know, Paul struggled with this back in Romans chapter seven, you know, he gives this conflict of two natures that he talks about back there in himself. I think he's talking about himself. Other commentators may not think so, but I think he's really talking about himself in Romans chapter seven, verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. How many of you have ever gone through that struggle? We all go through it repeatedly, don't we? I'm doing something I don't want to do. I'm thinking something I don't want to think. I'm being at some place where I don't want to be. I'm reacting to something and I don't want to react like this to it. We go through that how many times, okay? That's why Paul, later on here in chapter 12, gives us the armament to fight that off, the renewing of our mind through the word and prayer and fellowship with God's people. Any one of those things that are out of whack will tell us that something's wrong. Something's wrong. So, here's another question How are we being transformed into a sacrificial, living, holy follower of Jesus Christ? That's the goal. We are transformed by being conformed to the things of God. Now, in closing, uh, your pastor said to me this morning that John Bunyan was one of his famous, favorite writers. Evidence yesterday, Pilgrim's Progress being taking place here. But there's another little book that he wrote also that is one of my favorites. And it's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that, he tells a story about Bunyan, well, Bunyan tells the story of one afternoon when he was walking through the woods on his way to a destination. I'd like to read you that this morning. I remember that one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart and considering the enmity that was in me to God. That scripture from Colossians 1.20 came to my mind. He hath made peace through the sacrificial blood of his cross, by which I was made to see, both again and again that day, that God and my soul were friends by this blood. Yea, I, I saw that the just of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through the blood. This was a good day for me. I hope I shall never forget it. Will you remember that day? In your life, when God used the blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sins, to give you Christ's righteousness, and you were redeemed and reconciled and justified? Will you remember that every day of your life so that those goals of being a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice can be achieved? may God and the Holy Spirit give you the power and the wisdom and the energy to be a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice, which is our reasonable response to the great cross of Jesus Christ and the blood he shed for us. Heavenly Father, as we come away from your word this morning, I pray that we heard from you and not just from this servant in the pulpit. I pray that we heard how magnificent is the word is the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. That cross where the blood was shed to cover our sins and redeem us and pay the price we couldn't pray, to reconcile us and, Father, uh, bring peace where we could never bring peace between us. And, Father, also that took away our guilt and made us condemnation-free. Lord, may we never forget that, and may we always be obedient to respond as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice, always being transformed more and more like Jesus. And when we're weak, Lord, and we are at many times, When we do the things we don't want to do, think the things we don't want to think, when we're weak, Lord, may we fall on our knees and cry out to you and ask for the Holy Spirit's power to forgive us, cleanse us, raise us up, and move forward. Thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.